Paul, will you pray? Yeah. Thank you. All right. Amen. All right. So I got, I'm going to count them up. I got one, two, three. All right. I got three common uh, objections to looking at um, effectual calling and free will. And the first one, this is the key word. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Are we robots? So you like, what, that, are we just robots then? Like if this is, if this is true, if effectual calling is true, if election is true, then are we just robots? Now, how, how can we answer that from uh, just the kind of things we talked about in the chapter nine section about free will? What do we learn about free will that we could just answer to this objection? People do what they want, right? Right. Yeah, you, you always do what you want. It's the problem is, what do you want? Sin. Yeah. What else? What about, the, what about the will that we learn? It's limited. It's limited. In what way? What ways? Laws of nature. Nobody has truly unlimited free will, and everybody would acknowledge that. All right, what about, are there stages of free will? Yes. Right, how many? Three. Three stages. What are they? Post-redemption, that's it, right? So we, so we know those things off the top of our head. We could talk to somebody rationally uh, through those kinds of things. Now, Here's usually, in my experience, not always the case, usually, well, let me just throw this out. If you've ever gotten this, what did you presume the person was really after? The, the, are we just robots? I can't be that because I don't think that we're just robots. Have you ever had that conversation before? Legalism could be, right? Have you ever gotten or you got a sniff or a whiff of like the, what the root issue is of the person who uses this as a rebuttal? not fair right and then you talk about what's fair mm -hmm. you deserve hell that's fair and then oh, I don't know what I'm talking about have you ever heard um, somebody said this to me once after a sermon very angrily I just don't think that there's any kind of love if there's not free will free choice any kind of love and I, and here's the the common Anytime we get a rebuttal to this, what we can always say is, yeah, I, I hear you. What verses do you have for that? that? I mean, that's the source that we always have to go to. But what we do is, is we, we it's like uh, on the ridiculous scenes in movies where it's like the cop got the bad guy cornered and the bad guy says, a real man would fight me without his gun. 
And so then he puts his gun down. But then have you ever seen Indiana Jones? When he's swinging the sword around and Andy, he pulls a gun, just shoots him. I have a gun. Like this is, I'm, I'm not going to not, I'm not going to get down in the mud with you. This is the truth. This is all we're going to fight with. We're not going to, we're not going to try to go, you know, in a slap fight when, when we have King Kong. So that's number one. But here's the other thing is people assume, or have you ever heard somebody say something along these lines? God just respects us too much to override our wills. Have you ever heard anything like that? What would you say to somebody like that? <laughs> what would you say in love to that person wanting to see them come to a knowledge of the truth? Cost him. <laughs> Let him yell at him and get mad at you. <laughs> come to church. Yeah. Right. If, they, if these people give their mouth shut, he'll make the rocks cry out. Yeah. There, there's a, uh, it's, it's, not in the, it's not translated this way in the ESV, but Romans 2.11 says that God is no respecter of persons. And, and everybody wants to say, no, God just respects us too much to make us robots. Well, why would he respect us? That, that means that we have something that's admirable that he doesn't have. So that can't be the issue. So in all of our understanding of, so we're not robots, we do have will. We talked about will and the ways that we do. We are making real decisions with real consequences. Otherwise, Jesus is just spinning his wheels when he says that you're going to give an account for every idle word and you will know them by their fruits. Like you are making real decisions. But does God have the right to override our will whenever he wants? Absolutely. Let's look at an example. So let's, let's bring a gun to a knife fight. <laughs> Go to Genesis 20. Genesis 20. This is one that I use all the time. Genesis, honestly, if, if you know Genesis, John, and Romans, you're pretty set for life. If you know those three books, it opens up the rest of the Bible to you. And there's so much theology in Genesis, but what we've reduced it down to is felt board kid stories. So Genesis 20 verses 1 through 7 is kind of a longer story uh, or it's part of a bigger story, but we're going to read all of it. It's got some weird names in it. So if anybody's brave enough to read these uh, ancient names, go ahead. Read us those seven verses. No, just 1 through 7 verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 20. So you look at right there, Abimelech, I mean, let's just ignore the fact that he's just talking to God. Right. <laughs> right. 
that like he not wigging out, not freaking out, just saying, hey, wait a minute, just like a police officer rolled up on you. So he says, God says, I'm going to kill you for taking Sarah. And then he says, I, they told me that she was just a sister. She said it and he said it and I haven't touched her. And then what does God say? Because why? Because I did it. What does it say? It says, I kept you from sinning against me. He's a pagan. He's not a believer. He would have done this sin, but I kept you from, but what did Abimelech say? I have not touched her. And God says, I know you haven't because I kept you from doing that. So right there, what we can see is Abimelech didn't go, well, for whatever reason, I felt just kind of weirdly compelled to not touch her. I made a decision to not do that. And he believes that he did that. And then what did God tell him? I did that. So is it God or Abimelech? The answer is yes. <laughs> but but who but who who gets the 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 uh, the trump card, the king me square? God does. So this is the, the reality to the robots question is most people that ask this are just prideful. I want to be in charge. And so they're, they're usually not just truly struggling with the reality of decisions or they are. There's not pride. It's fear because I have an unbelieving loved one. And the most painful of those is I have an unbelieving adult child. And I and if we're robots, then that means there's no hope. So what we need to do then as brothers and sisters in love is show them the great hope of the God who does stop Abimelech, who does direct his hands. Because we look at Proverbs 21.1, God directs the hearts of kings like channels of water. This is a king. And he made his decision making be what he wanted it to be. But Abimelech thought it was him, right? So we can't say that, uh, that God doesn't ever override human wills because he obviously did that there. And, didn't, and it wasn't even an override. It was a complete direction. And Abimelech thought he did it. Then you, I mean, this is just when I know the person pretty well. I've had a lot of conversations. I was like, okay, so you don't want to be, you're afraid that if we believe effectual calling, election, all these things that we're going to be robots, why is that bad? Who's better at running your life, you or God? Who would you rather have running your life, you or God? What it really means is, is that if this is true, I don't know God enough to know that he is loving, kind, benevolent, gracious, and merciful. And I don't, if he's in charge, then I might not get what I want. I might not get heaven. So then, well, now we just have a theology proper problem. We have a doctrine of God problem. If you knew God, then you would say, take it all. Make me a robot. I, would, I don't want to make any decisions for myself. I want you. That's all I want is to obey your will and to do your will. So that's the, that's the first uh, common objection to this. Now, here's another one. This one. This one calls for people who read their Bibles occasionally. Uh, God doesn't want any to perish, right? Ever heard that one? Yes. So we look at that one. God doesn't want anybody to perish, right? Now let's look at the verses that say that. So we got two New Testament, one Old Testament. So let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 4. We're going to read them. 
And then we're going to read balance. 1 Timothy 2.4. Somebody gets there, just read it for us. It's a short one. It's a short one. Oh, right there. He desires all men to be saved. All right, let's go to 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9, we're going to hear the same thing. But we need to know these verses because we don't disagree with them. And I'm going to show you why. 2 Peter 3.9, somebody get there, just read it for us. He doesn't wish that any would perish, but they all reach repentance. All right, and this is all throughout the whole Bible, old and new. So Old Testament reference would be Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? You know, when I, was a I first ever was confronted with this verse, had a Bible for forever, maybe had read it, but never landed on me, was the day after Osama bin Laden had been killed. I was doing uh, campus ministry at Texas A&M, so I, I was graduate, uh, and we were about to have a baby, and somebody, so I, was, I would go on campus every day to do ministry with the college students, and some, some, somebody who lived in the dorms went to the huge computer center and printed off, I don't know how many hundreds of posters with this verse on it and Osama bin Laden's face on it. Because all he heard was like people running and shouting in the halls and being so glad that Osama bin Laden was dead. And so then I was a crisis of faith of like, oh, well, should we be glad or should we not or what? Like it just no way to really wrestle with it, but we will. So now those three verses, those are the big ones. Yes. The first one is 1 Timothy 2, 4. 1 Timothy 2, 4. 2 Peter 3, 9. Ezekiel 18, 23. Now, we agree with all of those verses. Now, well, we could go into the context of them, but we agree with them just as we read them. That that is true of God. But let's read our whole Bible together and then realize that we have a much bigger problem. Because what happens when somebody throws this one out, they're like, I found, I found the atom bomb in the Bible that you don't know about. But what they also haven't read is the rest of their Bible. So let's look at verses that would look like they contradict the, these verses. 1 Samuel 2, 25. 1 Samuel 2, 25. While you're turning there, I'm gonna give you a little backstory. So Samuel opens up on uh, a man named Elkanah. He has two wives, and as it always goes, that never works out well. They always fight each other. Uh, Penina has babies, Hannah doesn't, and they go to worship at Shiloh because it hasn't been, the, the temple hasn't been built in Jerusalem yet. It's a different town in the land of Israel. They go to worship. Eli is the residing priest. And he has two sons that are adults, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli is old. The way the, the writer of Samuel describes it is that the light had gone out in Israel and then immediately talks about Eli's poor vision. So you're supposed to see the light's gone out in Eli also. But there was no word from God. And he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are wretched. They are stealing. Essentially, they're stealing from the offering box 
It's, it's all animal offerings. So they just stick their fork in the pot that's supposed to be for sacrifices and take out all the good meat. And don't let they, the people eat it and it doesn't go to God. And they're also abusing women sexually who come to worship and taking advantage of them. Horrible, horrible sons. And Eli is held accountable for it. That's not what we're going to be talking about. What we're talking about is God's perspective on them. So 1 Samuel 2.25 is Eli speaking. Somebody read this. Hit the brakes. Wait, wait, wait. This is Hophni and Phineas, who are wicked, who are evil. And we read Ezekiel 18. It says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what does he will right here? What does he will to put them to death without what? Salvation, without grace. He's not going to get them saved and then just take them out. He wills to put them to death. Eli is telling them the truth. He's a bad father, but he says good things at times. And he says, if, you, if a man sins against a man, God will mediate for him. Meaning God will be gracious and oversee that. But if you sin against God, who's the mediator? That's a bigger Christological question about Jesus coming in. He's the mediator between God and man. But he's like, you have a huge problem, my sons, if you keep sinning, because now it's just you versus God. So what you would hope, any father would hope in that situation is that they would hear his words and repent. Why didn't they hear him? Because it was God's will to put them to death. So then that looks like it directly contradicts what we read earlier. What you got? Pharaoh, right? That would be a huge one. We're not going there tonight, but God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It says four times. All right, so let's look at another one. Right in the same neighborhood, but you got to go backwards a little bit. Go to Joshua 11.20. Joshua eleven twenty. So again, while you're turning there, this is after the conquest of Canaan. So Joshua takes over from Moses. <laughs> Moses dies on the Mount Nebo overlooking uh, the promised land. He can see it, but he can't go in it. Joshua then takes the reins. He's been discipled by Moses for years beforehand. He leads the people in as commander and as spokesman for God a prophet of sorts. Um, and so they go in and they now establish themselves in the land. They've conquered the people. We're at the end of that now. This is the describer of that. So somebody read Joshua eleven twenty. So right there, we got to deal with something. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, meaning that they don't hear about all of the victories that Israel's been having and say, we give up. Y'all cat, y'all have it. No, they came out to fight Israel, who is undefeated because God made them. He hardened their hearts and they went out there in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy. Now, real quick, as a reminder, What's the opposite of justice? Is the opposite of justice mercy? The opposite of justice is injustice. Mercy 
is completely outside of that equation. So God's not wrong to withhold mercy. He doesn't have to be merciful. He has to be just. So that's another reminder. So you see there, God's doing it. So you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We saw that God doesn't desire the death of anyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wanted these people to perish. So now we have a huge problem. And then if we go to Acts 5, 1 through 11, we're not going to go there. But does anybody know what happens in Acts 5, 1 through 11? It's a couple, a famous couple. Ananias and Sapphira. Not Priscilla and Aquila. They're the good ones. <laughs> Don't name your kids Ananias and Sapphira. The A&M almost has an Ananias on this football team, but his name is Ananias. It's close. All right. So what, do we, what we have here, so here's what you can do. Somebody comes to you and says, God doesn't want this at all. Then you just read in those verses and say, well, now I've created a bigger problem for you. Because now you, it looks like your Bible contradicts itself and my Bible. But we got to deal with this. So what we have going on here, now this is a little bit of the deep end. So if you feel like you're going to drown, cling on to the wall. Don't cling on to the person next to you or you'll both drown. <laughs> Hold on to the wall. This concept of, and it sounds, it, it, we can't really even describe it. Two wills in God, because God can't be divided. He is indivisible. <coughs> but the Bible speaks about his will in two different ways. So we have a sovereign will, sovereign efficacious, I meant to write in there. Sovereign efficacious, which uh, efficacious just means effective, like it has an effect. Sovereign efficacious will, and, and notice I didn't write verses, because we're not choosing, it's both. And it's preceptive will. Preceptive, I realize I'm writing small, because it looks big to me. Uh, sovereign will, efficacious will, preceptive will. So sovereign will, efficacious will, we could see in examples like Abimelech, right? He didn't want Sarah touched. Sarah ends up with Abimelech. Sarah's not touched. Why? Because God willed it and it did not happen. It did happen according to what he wanted. Now, his preceptive will, that is what you can call just his, his law. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not have any other gods. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall not be anxious. You shall not lie. You shall not, I mean, you go on and on and on. That's God saying, my desire for you is to do these things. So we see those two things in Scripture, right? We see those two things in Scripture that God does, and you can say, force things to happen. That there's no way they're not going to happen, right? There's not, a, there's not like a, a chance. But then we see plenty of people not obeying His will. You are committing adultery. You are lying. You are not loving your neighbor as yourself. You are stealing. I mean, all and on and on, right? So we can see that both happening. God wills certain things to happen and they, they do happen. But then he prescribes things to happen and they don't always happen, right? Healthy churches, pastors should not abuse the sheep. The elders should be overseeing the flock and dying to themselves and loving, and husbands should be dying to themselves and loving their wives. Wives should be submitting to and following their husbands. We, he commands those things, but we don't always see it. So we can see that there are two wills in God, but it can't, that's a horrible description. That's the only way we can think about it. 
like three persons in the Trinity, you, you can't divide them. You, you can't cut them up. You can't, you can't split God or parse him out. He is indivisible. He's simple. Uh, simple meaning that he's not a, a summary of parts, right? So now I told you, we're in the deep end. We'll get out of the deep end. Let's just scoot up to a little bit of the water. Let's see this played out in the most uh, understandable way. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. This is the best example of anybody, anybody who comes to you and says, God doesn't want any to perish. Then you show him that sometimes he does want some people to perish. How do we then reconcile this? Because you're not going to argue them with these two will things. That's going to blow their minds. Bible. Go to Bible. Pick up the gun. Don't, you know, get in your knife fight with like Peter Pan. Acts 2, 22 through 23. Peter's preaching. What does he preach? Somebody read those two verses for us. So you see there what in verse 23 is the big one. Jesus was delivered up according to what? The definite plan, the predetermined plan, Millie's translation said, and foreknowledge of God. But then who is accused of crucifying and killing him? The Pharisees, the lawless men would be the Romans. So we talked about this a few months ago now when we got to the crucifixion was who killed Jesus? God <laughs> or the Pharisees and the Romans? Well, the answer is still yes, but what happened? Was it God's will that the Pharisees and the Romans broke the sixth, ninth, and tenth commandments? Did he say, okay, I mean, I want you guys to do this, so I'm just going to overlook that crime and prosecute for the bigger one? He wanted them to not break the sixth commandment, the ninth commandment, and the tenth commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not slander, bear false witness. You shall not covet. They did all three of those. They murdered Jesus. They slandered him in the false mock trial and coveted everything that he had. Pilate covets his power and resolve, and the Pharisees covet his influence and his notoriety and his knowledge. So, they didn't do what he wanted. That's the prescriptive will of this, right? They did not do what he wanted them to do, which was obey those commands. But they did do what he sovereignly, efficaciously wanted them to do, which was kill Jesus. Otherwise, what you're going to have to say to this person who said, God doesn't want anybody to perish. Did he want Jesus to perish? Was there a chance for Jesus not to perish? If there was a chance that he couldn't, and that means all of this is hanging by a thread and we might as well be evolutionists because that was all chance and happenstance also. So the, this, this is most easily seen in Acts 2. And, and Acts 2 is where you go because that's the bazooka, that's Jesus. But the second best place to go is Genesis 50 verse 20. 
Let's turn there. Genesis 50, verse 20. To give you the context while you're turning there, this is, at the, uh, this is the last chapter of the book of Genesis. It's the end of the book. This is Joseph dealing with his brothers. If you know the story, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. They were going to kill him. They get talked out of it by Reuben, throw him in a hole. Uh, essentially, Muslim traders come by, Arabic traders come by, Ishmaelites. They pull him out of the hole, sell him to them. He takes, or they take him to Egypt. He becomes a slave. He's wrongly accused of rape. Then he gets thrown into jail. Everything that Joseph does to obey God, things just get worse for him. Every time he obeys God, it gets worse. He obeys God's command to listen to your father and do what he says. And so his dad tells him to go to his brothers. His brothers throw him in a hole and sell him into slavery. He obeys God by being a good servant to Potiphar as a slave. And then he gets punished by being falsely accused of rape and believed and then thrown into jail. And then he believes God. He interprets the dream of the, the, the baker and the cupbearer and they forget him and or the cupbearer forgets him and leaves him in jail for three more years. Every time he obeys, things get worse. And then it's all resolved because now he can save his whole family because he's second in command of Egypt. Now, this is where it, the, the passage comes in because Jacob dies. Joseph's daddy dies. And now his brothers are thinking he's going to kill us because now dad's gone and he's the biggest big shot in the world. He's number two to the owner of the world, Pharaoh, known world. He's going to kill us. So they're panicking. But what does Joseph say? Somebody read Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil, God meant good. Did God want them to do that horrible stuff to Joseph? But they did it. And, but it, it happened, so God did want it, but not in a way that made them do evil or made them evil, but then it comes out to ultimate good. So the... Uh, it, was it possible, you have to ask yourself, for Joseph not to end up in Egypt? No, it wasn't possible. What happens if Joseph doesn't end up in Egypt? Egypt to take over. What happens biblically? Christ doesn't come. Because then all the Israelites, which is just 12 families, they're all dead. They starve to death. It's famine everywhere except for Egypt. So... There was no chance that Joseph wasn't going to end up in Egypt. So precept of will, don't commit murder. Don't do these horrible things to your brother. They disobey that, but it was all because God was sovereignly, efficaciously bringing about what he wanted. So we see in, in there in those things. Now, the, maybe one of the easiest things that you can have this discussion with somebody is this, is does God command that people obey the gospel, repent and believe. Is that a command or is it just an offer? It's both, right? It is an offer, right? We freely offer the gospel, but isn't it a command? Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
So in his preceptive will, God commands everybody to repent. But does everybody repent? No, because he does not sovereignly and efficaciously bring it about. <coughs> That's how we have to see it. And how do we know that? How do we know that God does not sovereignly, efficaciously will that everybody obeys the preception or the precept of repent and believe the gospel? What's our what's what's the most glaring, obvious example you could point to for that? It's one guy. Judas. Right. He did not sovereignly, efficaciously bring Judas to repentance, did he? Follow, follow the logic. Just write these verses down. John 6, 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? What was that verse? John 6, 70 through 71. And it says, 71 says, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. I chose you, but I didn't choose one of you, even though you're here. And it's so well masked that nobody else can smell it out. Nobody knows who it is. And nobody even asked the question here. The 12 disciples don't go, wait, 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 who is it? Yeah. You fast forward to John 13, 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him happening right there. And then John 13, 21. So same chapter, three verses in the same chapter. Verse two, then verse 21, John 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all like, man, I know who it is. It's going to be Judas. That dude has been bugging out this whole time. He's been shifty and shady. No, they have no idea. Like, who is it? Is it me? Yeah, you, you have no idea. And then in verse 26 and 27, Jesus answered, it is he, to kind of put their minds at ease, to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he took in the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what are you are going to do? Do quickly. And after that, they still don't know that it's Judas. They still don't know. I mean, that's how deceptive it is, or he is. And then Jesus prays. Now Judas is gone out of the upper room. High priestly prayer, John 17, 12 is the last verse. He prays to God, while I was with them, God, I kept them in your name, the 12 disciples, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction because he, I just respected his will too much. No, it says that the scripture might be fulfilled. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is praying this out loud. So here's what we can see in answering this person. God doesn't want any to perish. He seems to have wanted Judas to perish. He did not bring it about and he could have. There was a son of destruction destined for this. One of you is a devil and Jesus is telling them that. John 6 John uh, 13, John 17. And they never get it until it finally happens and they see him in the garden and they're like, <gasps> they get, and Jesus is like, man, you guys, I have been giving it away who this guy is. But that's, you know, that's the reality of 
of dealing with that question. So then, now we get to the big one. Now this is the one that maybe most of us have ever dealt with. What about John 3.16? I got this one time at a previous church, preached, preaching through Romans, and just get to chapter 8, where the word predestined is in there three times, and then chapter 9, the whole chapter is about predestined. Well, the first three-fourths of it is about predestination. And people came up to me and said, you know what? I don't care what you said. I'm still going to tell kids that John 3.16 is true. And I was like, I really hope you do. I, I, I'm not pitting Romans 9 against John 3.16. But that's kind of the, this is, to give it a name, and we can say it because he's dead. This is the Billy Graham grenade, right? Billy Graham used that verse so much. All the people got saying, I'm not going to stop believing that that verse is true. I, I, we're not either. This, this is kind of a false dichotomy that you're making here with John 3.16. Because what does John 3, 16 say? For God so loved the world. So this whole efficacious call or this effectual call, this election is nonsense because God loves the world. Right. And that, that's, this is the Billy Graham grenade. He loves the world. I'm like, okay, I'm not denying that verse in any way. But yet again, let's read our whole Bibles I'm going to cause a problem and then we're going to solve it because I don't disbelieve John 3.16 as what it says. So let's cause the problem for the person who says this. Psalm 5.5. 5. We're going to be in Psalms for these two verses. So go to Psalm 5.5. 5. Somebody read it. What kind of Bible do you have? Knox? That ain't my Bible. What, what, did it say God loves the sinner but hates the sin? Who, who, who does it say? God hates the evil doer. Now, now uh, God does have righteous hatred, does he not? And he hates the evil doer. Now, we've been told God hates the sin but loves the sinner, but... Who is going to be in hell or what's going to be in hell? Sin as an abstract concept or sinners? Sinners. So God right there, Psalm 5.5. 5. You're five chapters into Psalms and God hates the evil doer. He does have that. Now go just a few pages to your right. Psalm 11.5. So I'm going to read Psalm 11:5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. He hates the wicked. So right there, we can just say, okay, what you think about John 3:16 is not true. So now what I've done is the same thing that we did with the robots, or is that, uh, or no, what we did with God is when I need to perish, is that I immediately show you verses in the Bible that looks like it contradicts your verse. It doesn't. It contradicts your understanding of that verse. But I got to throw this out there because then what are you going to do? You got to have to do something with those verses. You can't say, well, so I still, I just, I just am John 3, 16. This is where you get in the problem with the red letters groups, right? I just believe the red letters, the red letters. Well, also the people that say, well, that's the Old Testament. 
right? I've, I've heard that before where I will point to places in the Old Testament like, well, that's back then. Oh, yeah. We're going to get to that. Okay. I wanted to show, uh, I, this, is the, this is the assuming, the good-hearted, Bible-believing person whose dander is up because you mentioned predestination as biblical reality. We're going to get to that because the New Testament is going to talk about it. But right there is just so plain as day. God hates the wicked doer, the evil doer. So it's right there. So now let's get into this. So now that we've just like, you know, tossed everything up in the air for this conversation that you're having with this person. Could you ask him this question? Does God love the world the same way he loves you? Well, they would have to say no. Why would they have to say no? Scripture says it, but even if they, you know, this person is not stu too steeped in Scripture, they would go, well, I mean, no, because, I mean, I, I have promises to claim. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Lost people don't. I mean, I can see a difference, right? Like I, if this person is living and, and trying to live scripturally, biblically, faithfully, like, well, clearly I'm getting something different than them because I call myself a child of God. And then I'm like, let's just ask this. Do you treat your kids different than you treat other people's kids? Absolutely. You absolutely do, right? So, do, But do you hate all those kids? Well, no, but I don't love them the same. That's the problem, too. A lot of people think, oh, I love everybody the same. Well, I treat everybody the same, but that's not true. You know, my favorite person to do that with is an angry lady and go, oh, so do you want your husband to love all other women the same as he loves you? Right. And they go, no. <laughs> Like, of course you don't. You, I mean, you could sound as righteous and as pious as you want to sound. I do love all people the same. Well, do you want your husband to do that? Because he loves you in ways you definitely don't want him loving other women. You don't. We do, right? No, I love all people the same. No, you don't. Because when your kid breaks a leg, you go straight to the ER. When it's some other whiny kid down the street, you're like, eh, you can probably walk it off. I don't really want to. Yeah. But I'm ripping you down to the ER if your last name is Sanders. But if your last name is something else, I'm like, well, maybe you can go home. Yeah, like, I bet you can make it home. <laughs> you, you just don't love them the same way. So, so even we acknowledge that on a human level, so then it has to be true for God. If we're made in the image of God, then he has to, whatever his love is for the world, it's got to be different than his love is for his sheep. We're not saying that, we're not even getting into the discussion of that it, he doesn't love the world in this exact same way. We just know that by just general inference. We would know that. But, but well, go ahead. I'm sorry, but what about the people that say, well, he left the 99 for the one? Sorry, I, I, have, a, I have a lot of conversations <laughs> about this. Right. And no, we're going to get to it. We're going to get okay. to it. So that, it's all building to that kind of conversation, right? right? love is reckless. Oh, <sighs> reckless love. <laughs> I'm so proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> we're so proud of the groan for that. So wait, wait, wait. So let's, let's do this, though. Before we get to that, because those are all good questions, the Old Testament question, the other things, we're building a case. Would God tell us to do something? So let's help us understand the Billy Graham grenade. Would God tell us to love something that, or to, to do something different than he does? Like, would, would he tell us to follow him in a way, do as I say, but not as I do? God, would God do that to us? Saying, I do this, but you can't do this. Well, can we think of any explicit commands where he tells us not to love the world? First yes. John 2, 15. What does it say? First John 2, 15. First John 2, 15. 
Oh, first John, first John. Sorry. That's a, that's a great John. We're just looking for a smaller John. <laughs> yes, first John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wait, wait a minute. You just said that God loves the world so much. And so that means then that he can't have that. But then he just tells us not to love the world. And that if we do love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. So God's saying, do as I say, not as I do. Wait a minute. Let's get, let's get another one. Let's just pile on. James 4.4. 4. James 4.4. 4. Somebody gets there. Let it rip. Wait a minute, I'm doing all these things, trying to redeem the culture and get involved because God so loved the world. But then right here, I'm, I'm called a spiritual adulterer if I'm a friend of the world. And if I'm a friend of the world, I'm not just a spiritual adulterer, I'm God's enemy. So John 3.16 then can't be the grenade that they think that it is because he tells us there two times plainly do not love the world. It's okay for me to do it, but y'all don't do it. Now, now, obviously, now we have some kind of problem here with the word world. Or love, because my friends would say, well, you love, your love is susceptible to sin, but God's love is perfect. Right. So let's get into the word world first. Let's just use John, because that's where John 3.16 comes from. So follow with me here. John 1.10. We're going to look at, John uses the word world at least six different ways. More than that, but I'm just going to give us six. John 1. We're going to just walk through John. John's different ways of using the world because that's where the grenade comes from. John 1.10. Somebody read that. Now, did God only make planet Earth? No. no. So the word world there is obviously referring to the entire universe. So the, world, the word for world in Greek is cosmos. And we sing cosmos. We say cosmos means we think of <coughs> outer space and things like that. But it's the same word cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S in Greek throughout the whole book of John. So there's the first way that it's used. Now let's flip all the way to John 13, 1. John 13, 1. Somebody read that. So departing the world, what's he talking about? He's talking about like the physical planet. Like he's departing planet Earth. So we've got two uses already. Entire universe, physical planet. Now let's go to two other places. We're going to go to John 12 and John 14. So right where you already are. So John 12, 31.
judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's going to judge the world, and then there's a ruler that's going to get cast out. And then you go to another place, 1430. Just mark it down. We won't read it. John 1430, same thing. So this is the world as a sinful system, right? Right, which was sinful, right? So this is, if Satan's in charge of it, it has to be evil, right? He's the ruler of it. So this, we're not talking about the physical planet in that verse. We're not talking about dirt. And we're not talking about the, the entire universe. We're talking about sinful system, which is made up of people, but it is ruled by Satan. So we see that usage there as well. Is that word, what is that word? Sinful system. The same word. It's cosmos all the way throughout. It's cosmos, C-O-S, M-O-S, and throughout the entirety of John. Yes, the world system. That's what I'm talking about. This usage of it is a sinful system, okay. right? So, like the worldliness. When you think about that, like, oh, we don't want to be, you know, like the world. We want to look different, like the sinful systems that exist. Right, affections right. and devotions. Right, devotions. Yeah. So then we get let's get another usage of it. John seven seven. thing is rattling. John 7, 7. Somebody read it. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works, that its works are evil. So there's a, there's a dichotomy there even. So now it's people that do things. So that's all of non-Christian humanity. The world is all of non-Christian humanity. Not necessarily the systems overlooking, overarching. He's talking to his brothers there, his physical brothers, saying they love you because you are of them, non-Christian humanity. Another one you could add on to that if you want is 1518. That's the whole, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So same thing. And that's non-Christian humanity. Now let's look at even another one. John 12, 19. Go to 1219. Okay, so do the Pharisees mean that the planet is bouncing around after Jesus? Do they mean that everybody on the whole globe is after Jesus? No, that's just a large non-global group. The world's gone after Jesus. They're using it in a way, John's using it in a way of just saying a big old group of people. But not the whole, not, not everybody on the whole planet because we're just talking about Israel. And then lastly, you got to go back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, 3 through 4. Show yourself to the world. What's, he's just talking about the general public, right? That's Jesus' brothers saying, hey, if you can do all this stuff, then just make it public. Show yourself to the world. That That's John 7, 3 through 4. 
So real quick, right through there, we've got six different usages for the world. So then you go back to John 3.16 and go, well, which one is he talking about there? So it's not, it's not a grenade that can just blow up any kind of conversation about <laughs> effectual calling, election, predestination, or anything like that. You need to know the context of John 3.16. It doesn't mean that God loves all people the same everywhere all the time. Like any other word in any other language, context is key. Could be. Oh, no, absolutely. I left off. I, there's at least, most people think that there are count out 10 different ways that the word world is used. I just gave us the six most obvious ones. But the elect would be what we, what we see there because we see it again in John, 1 John 2, that the sins of the world, that he's a propitiation for the sins of the world, not everybody's sins, but for 1 John 2, 1 and 2. We're not going to go there. But so here's the bigger one. That when this, those, the same group of people that were like, well, we're still going to tell people that John 3.16 is true, those little kids at Awana. I said, well, okay, yes. well, what about John 17.9? Are you going to tell them that too? Yeah, John 17.9, somebody read that. This is Jesus praying. am not praying for the world. That's crazy. So what you have, the bigger discussion, what you want to have with this person, obviously the point, it's easy in here, I'm preaching to the choir, but, but with the point you want to get to that person is let's, let's really think about the Bible. The point is not to be, hey, let me see, show you how right I am. It's let's get into the word ourselves because John 3, 16 is so popular. Everybody knows it and unbelievers know it. They hold it up at football games. They hold it up at wrestling matches. Everybody knows this verse. But do you know it in context? And do you know it in context of all of John? We have to think critically about this uh, and understand, just like we would do with any, look, with the word state in English. What are you talking about? The state of affairs, the state of Texas, state of mind, state of matter. I mean, what, what are you talking about? We need to know the context for that word. It doesn't mean that God has an indiscriminate, like full dumping love. And we know that even from just saying, do you, do you love your wife the same way you love all other women? But now we know it from the Bible. The point is to have the discussion because what we see is that God does have a love for the world because when it rains, it doesn't just rain on the Christian houses and the Christian farms. It's called common grace. So rain on your crops, that's God's love, but that is that enough to get you saved? Food on your table. That's God's love. That's from him. But is that enough to get you saved? Right. It, we should see that, right? Romans 1 should say, yeah. And, and Psalm 19, that creation is crying out, listen and believe. So you're getting the love of God with beautiful weather, with healthy kids, with pleasant relationships, with a good job. But that doesn't mean you're saved. That doesn't mean, that's not the same kind of love, right? But it is showing that God does have a love for all of the world in the sense of the, the, any of these, the planet, physical, sinful system. They still got cell phones. They still got Whataburger. Whew, common grace. <laughs> all right, so now here's the last one and we're going to get to Q&A. We're not, sorry, we're not having that many Qs. But here's, here's the whole 
I don't know what to call this. I just called it the capstone. It sounded official. We talked about this before. Is total depravity. The tea and tulip. Man, that one doesn't work. Where's that? What does total depravity mean? Somebody tell me. We stinketh, right? He is dead. So if, if total depravity, if the T is true, then the rest of them have to be true. They have to be. Not they should be, they have to be. If the T is not true, so if we are dead in our sins, totally unable, total inability, just like Lazarus's corpse, four days in the tomb, if that's true, then the rest of them have to be true because I will never come to life unless God works on me first. Only those that God works on will come to life. They don't have a choice to turn away from it and then they will endure in it because they didn't start it. But if the T is not true, if we aren't really dead, we're just more sick or weak or uneducated, then we have a much bigger problem than losing tulip, we've lost salvation by grace. Because if the T is not true, if the T is true, then we, all of these go away, these objections go away, we just believe the Bible as is. If the T is not true, then what that person has to wrestle with is, if I'm not then sick, or if I'm not dead, then I'm just sick. And what does it mean if I'm just sick? What can I do if I'm sick? I can get better. I can take medicine. I can go to a doctor and say, it hurts here. Right. Oh, okay, then I'll give you this. Now, I didn't know that I needed that, whatever, aspaminophenatinoin or whatever it is in the, in the bottle. But he did, but I knew enough to tell him it hurts here. Right, and, and so now what you've done is, is you've eliminated salvation by grace and you've added works in. If the T is not true, then you absolutely have salvation by works because faith is a work now. I have the ability to do it, and then I did it. So that's works. And then two, what else we've done is we've eliminated Ephesians 2.9. What does Ephesians 2.9 says? Say, so that no one may boast. I won't be able to boast that loud because he's the great physician. He diagnosed it. But I, I at least had the good sense to come into the doctor. I, so then when you say this, hey, why are you saved and that person is not saved? What do you have to say? There's something better about me than them because I figured it out. They haven't. They had the same opportunities. They had the same issues. They had the same access, but they didn't come. So it's on them. And I, something about me is a little bit better than them because I figured it out. So you've added in boasting into the gospel and you've added in works into the gospel, if the T does not mean you're absolutely dead. So that's the real big issue of it all, that if we can agree that what, when, when it says that you were dead in your trespasses in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, 5, <laughs> that that means dead, dead means dead, then the rest of it just becomes, then explain to me how anybody is saved. Because that's what I need to know now. How do dead, how do dead bones come alive? That's right. So that's the ultimate what if right there. That's the end. All right. Q&A's. David has a really great question. I'm not, you and me should just talk about it over lunch because it's a really, really long one. Okay. But, uh, but it's a really, really good one. And I want to get into it.
But does anybody have any questions or questions that you've been asked before or wrestled with? Did, did I get to all yours, all your California deconstructioners? Okay. <laughs> All, all the friends that you have that are just... And I'm chasing crazy a little bit. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's. yeah. I, I, I'm just trying to stay on my toes with it. Yeah. Because they're just as angsty about deconstruction as I am about trying to reform them. You know? right. Yeah. Like, I really, I really don't want to see them, like, walk away from, right. from the community, right? I mean, obviously, if they fully deconstruct and apostatize, then then they were always in that state, right? Yeah. So it's just my eyes being open to the reality that's always been. Yeah. But I still don't. Like, I want to make it as absolutely hard for them as possible so that when yeah. they make that decision, when they finally come down to it, they will at least have heard the gospel through and through and Christ glorified in all of it. Mm -hmm. just, yeah. At least I know that I try to minister in a helpful way. So. Oh, I get that. What do we yeah. do, you know, that story you've told it before with um, uh, Whitfield and... Uh, Edwards, or uh, uh, Wesley, yeah. Wesley. You know, sincere brother, yeah. Wesley. Yeah. We sing some of his songs. We do, you know, yeah. And uh, um, not a Calvinist or yeah. in the doctrines of grace. Um, yeah. What, so like our friends that are like that? Like so the, the best thing that I've heard uh, on that was from Sproul. He said that what well, we you know we just went over here that if you're if you miss this, then what you have to believe is that you add in works and you add in boasting to the gospel. But but Wesley didn't. So he's just inconsistent. And so that's the happy inconsistency that most of our what we would call Arminian friends live in. And we praise God for their theological inconsistencies. Because they're still going to see, by grace, we have been saved through faith alone and Christ alone. Praise God. We could praise God with them and love them with that. But uh, the, the, what I want to do with all of this, the, the point that I want to get at is not, I want you to get this, is I want you to get this. This is just helping me behind the scenes as a teacher's God. But all I'm showing you is this, because this is where all the power is. All of this argumentation, sovereign will, all that stuff, there's no power in that. That's for us as Christians. This is where the power is. So what I need to do is I have frameworks <laughs> in my mind that just help me remember the scriptures. Because mm -hmm. I'm just going, I'm trying to overwhelm you with Bible. Because you have one, right. our, our Arminian friend. You have one. And by God's grace, you might go home and read it. And then you might go, what, what in the world? <laughs> Some of us used to be like, most of all of us used to be like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not just like reading your Bible because you have people say, well, read it for yourself. Yeah. And that's the problem. We are reading it for ourselves. Right. We we're reading. Right. We don't, it's just like we go to school. We learn how to read different genres of literature. Yes. If we don't know how to read this book, right. you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. We don't, um, the problem with this right here, you can talk all that stuff to you blue in the face. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a true understanding of God and who you are, yep. because we're totally depraved, like I knew nothing and I'm okay with that because my pride says, you know what? That's not important. Mm -hmm. The way you were or you thought you were. I, that doesn't hurt me anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it never did, but yeah. before I was truly converted, I thought I was okay. Yeah. And I would look at people like, oh, they don't want God like me. Or yeah. Doing this and right. 
Right. I say it out loud. Right. My heart will feel that. It's in your heart, yeah. And I'll just be like, you know what? I'm, I'm good. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in God's grace and standing. Mm -hmm. And I realize, like, when I, I think I told you, I said in 2020, my buddy's the one who came with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would have conversations in 2020. Man, God will shake up the church. Not realize that we were the one getting shaken out of it. <laughs> it was me and him and my other buddy. Right, right, the right. Is, we think the church is good. Yeah. We get, I mean, God shakes the tree, man. Yeah. The, the light just comes on. He's like, oh, my God, I am a clown. Yeah. And I thought I was doing, I mean, I was, thought I was a deacon and clothing and cleaning. Mm -hmm. And then when you God wakes you up, you, I watched American Gospel. Yeah, that movie, yeah. It didn't really hit me. It hit me. But it didn't hit me till it hit me. Yeah. And then after I started, after we found out what happened in our ministry, they realized, you know what? We was making this church an idol. Yeah. We was making ministry an idol. It wasn't really about God. It was the the glory from man. Mm -hmm. And then I began to start it. We started listening to MacArthur and Balcom and yeah. Washer. At first I thought Washer was too hard, but then I realized, I said, you know what? We, we don't know nothing. <laughs> we think we're okay and we weren't okay. No, yeah. It's so bad. Well, and that's, if you don't have a true understanding of God, none of this makes sense. Right. That's why you go here and just go Ephesians 2, 1. Well, Ephesians 2, period. Just go that whole chapter over and over and over with your friend. Well, yeah. verses 1 through 10. Because the, the point of all of this, and this is where I struggle, is that I, I, mean, I have a daddy that's a lawyer. Right. And so this is like, this is a cheat code how to win all arguments. Mm -hmm. and, like, and then I can come out and I look smart. The problem is, I don't need to look smart. Jesus needs to be known. Right. Christ needs to be known, not me winning arguments. So when you go to Whitfield and Wesley, who are, you know, 1700s evangelists in the Great Awakening, and Whitfield can say, in all honesty, when somebody asks him, hey, do you even think Wesley will be in heaven because he's not in a Calvinist? He said, or do you even think you'll see him in heaven? He goes, no, he'll be so much closer to Jesus than me that I won't ever see him that we can see that kind of inconsistency and praise God for it, that you're still preaching that sinners must repent. Right. You need to come in faith, that it's Christ alone that all you're, you're resting on. But it's when, it's when the logic comes in, that's when the, the uh, frustration happens is, well, then it's a work. If you have faith all on your own that wasn't a gift, then you put it in the right place. How is that not a work? They have to say that it is. And then now you've made them think, but you've made them think Bible, not made them think, wow, your argumentation is really good. How did you learn these, you know, separate perceptive wills? That's really great. No, I just showed you Acts 2 and then made you think about it. Because we don't even have to get into the big understandings of hermeneutics and Bible study methods. These are simple texts. And you just start asking questions. See, this is like all of this kind of training is for Christians so that we can go out and be effective and not be uh, hammering like who's the John Henry, like hammering everybody, not everything's a nail. Because that's not the point. The point is for them to know God, because we aren't denying that this is in the Bible. We aren't denying that these verses are in the Bible. We, we, under, we know that. We don't, we're thankful for God's great love to sinners. We're thankful for God's great love for the world. But, but we, yeah, we just keep reading because, because you're coming, all these questions come from too high of a view of yourself. And no matter how humble you say it, I don't want to be under God's control. Oh, I don't want him to have as much control as it sounds like he does have because I'm worried about so-and-so. Or I don't want God to be mean 
And I think it's mean if he doesn't save everyone. But I mean, we just go on and on and on. Like, I don't want God to be who he is and I don't want me to be who the Bible says I am. That's what all of these come down to. So then we can know that and in love show great patience. Because the point is not to be right. The point is for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if Jesus can be so patient with those disciples over and I mean, all the things he tells them over. And then he even says, how long am I going to labor with you guys? I mean, just he's like, how, will you not believe if I don't do this? But he just keeps doing it, keeps loving, which is. I think, you know, we, we call it Calvinistic, but I love that it's also called the doctrines of grace. Doctrines of grace, and yes. make us fall on our face. Yes. Right. There's a, uh, a famous old English way to say, there by the grace of God go I. And it comes from uh, uh, old, older England, Reformation-ish era, and they're seeing a criminal being marched through the streets. And then this Bible teacher, this pastor, I forget, and I'm blanking on his name, his disciples look at him and go, yeah, look at that criminal. He's getting what he deserves. And he tells all of those men that look up to him, there by the grace of God go I. That would be me if it was not for the grace of God. And, and if we can say that, then we should. And there, uh, so the doctrines of grace, the, if you're looking for pastors to listen to and you want to be, just have your socks blown off with the coolest voice ever, his name is Hensworth Jonas. He's a preacher on the island of Antigua. He's Caribbean. He sounds like Rafiki. But he, and he like just gravelly voice, but his, the church's tagline is uh, showing... Uh, the doctrines of grace and the grace of the doctrines that like it's all of grace. Everything is grace. Everything that we believe is grace. But I, I just love the way that he said that. <laughs> but any other questions on anything along these lines? Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Well, if we want to keep doing it again. Hey, I, I have this question for you. Is Tuesday nights good? Do y'all know of other people who it's like Tuesday nights is not good? Tuesday's good. Okay. You want to do it at like 5 a.m. on Wednesdays? <laughs> Come on, we're going we're gonna to thin the herd a little bit Try to find the holier than holy <laughs> There we go Alright, hey, well hey, somebody pray for us Julius, will you pray for us, brother? Amen. Amen.